The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. You can join us live Saturday nights at 6 p.m., Sunday mornings at 9, 10.30, or 12, or you can join us online at cityrev.org. Well, I want to start our time by asking you a question. I want you to think about for a moment the first job you ever applied for and took an interview with. First job. And so I don't know what yours, maybe it was at a restaurant or at a coffee shop. I actually had a couple of jobs before I had to formally apply to a job. But I remember uh, going for this interview, presenting my resume, and leading up to that moment, getting my resume ready was quite comical. It was my freshman year of college, and so I didn't have very much to put on my resume, okay? Uh, in fact, I showed it to someone to get their feedback, see what I might improve, and they laughed the moment they saw one page with very little text on my resume. They were kind of like, what's the point? Don't even share this. But I put things on there like, you know, my high school GPA on this job interview resume. I put things there. I just started stretching the truth on management experience, okay? I happen to be a, uh, an, an, an umpire in high school for Little League Baseball. I managed little kids' expectations. I managed parents who were disgruntled when I made a bad call. You know, employers are looking for management experience on a resume, so managed budgets, that's a common thing people put on their resume, or I managed uh, my desk, or the mass communication office-wide, aka the copier, okay? We put all sorts of embellishments on our resume, and I want to think about that first resume you put together. Whatever was on it, or maybe even what's on your resume right now, maybe you're looking for a job. And with that in mind, I want you to think of what we do in that moment when we're basically listing out our accolades, our skills, our accomplishments, our experience. The purpose of that document that we've put together is to communicate to someone who's a potential employer that we're of value. It's to communicate to them that, hey, this job that you're searching for, I'm someone of value. I I want you to have me be the one that's accepted for this position. And I wonder if we take that mentality about resumes into other areas of our life, where we're kind of accruing these experiences and accruing all these accomplishments and trying to put on display all that we've done and trying to show that, yes, I'm valuable. Yes, I matter. My life has significance. And so we carry this and we approach our family lives or our careers, some of us even approach our religion with this sense of I'm building my resume, I want something to prove, I want to show someone else, maybe a parent, maybe a, a spouse, I want to show maybe God that I am worthy. So here's what I've done, here's what's on my life resume. We're in this series called Kingdom and we're exploring what Jesus taught about this idea of the kingdom of God. He talked about it a lot. And this idea of the kingdom of God, we're going to get into what exactly Jesus means by that. But locked into this very important teaching that Jesus gives is this reality that followers of his, followers of Jesus, Christians ought to live lives that are distinct from the rest of the world. That we should look different. We shouldn't operate under the same type of patterns. That our approach to life shouldn't be the resume building business that so many of us often go into. And Jesus is going to show us here in Matthew chapter 18 a different way. A different way to find greatness. A different way to find value. 
So I want to turn your attention, Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at verse 1, and we'll pause there after verse 1 and continue working our way through this passage. Here's what it says, Matthew 18. It says, At that time, the disciples, they came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples, they're having this conversation amongst themselves. In fact, we know from other parts of the Bible, other parts of the Gospels, this is a conversation the disciples have often. They're often asking, hey, who's going to be at your right hand, Jesus? Who's going to be your right hand, man? Who's the greatest? They often have this discussion. And so they ask Jesus this question here. Hey, who's going to be the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now let's talk a little bit and define this idea of kingdom of Heaven. These, the word kingdom of heaven and the, the, excuse me, the phrase kingdom of heaven and the phrase kingdom of God are used interchangeably. It's referring to the same thing. So when you're reading your Bible, you see those two phrases, it's referring to the same thing. And Jesus in the gospel of Matthew alone references the kingdom of God at least 50 times. It's one of the ways you could sum up what Jesus was all about. And yet at the same time, even for some of us who have been following Jesus for a while, the idea of the kingdom of God is kind of fuzzy. In fact, many of us, we think, oh, the kingdom of God, that just refers to heaven sometime in the future. And whenever it's talking about the kingdom of God, one day we'll get to experience the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That's not exactly what Jesus teaches. And what's hard about this particular phrase is that in both its Greek and Hebrew origins, and the words that are used there in Greek and Hebrew, the idea of kingdom carries with it a different emphasis than the original words that we're translating from carry. Let me explain. So when you think of kingdom, maybe what pops into your mind is like a castle, okay? Maybe you think of a king, a monarch who's sitting on a throne, and he has this place that he rules over, a nation. Maybe you think of the United Kingdom, we don't have many kingdoms around these days, but that is actually not the image that's primarily conveyed here in the New Testament and the Old Testament when it's talking about the kingdom of God. See, kingdom in Greek and in Hebrew conveys primarily the rule or the reign of a king. It's not so much focused on the place or the location where that king reigns. It's more describing the reality of that king's dominion, power, and rule. And so one way to translate this idea of the kingdom of heaven is the rule of heaven, the reign of God, what it looks like when God reigns, when God is king, how does life function and how does it thrive? And really the entire story of the Bible can be summarized and mapped out from Genesis to Revelation. The entire story of the Bible can be mapped out under the umbrella of this theme of the kingdom of God. So primarily referring to his rule and then secondarily describing a place in which the king would rule. And so if you think about it in the book of Genesis, God sets up creation. He creates all things. He creates the earth. And on the sixth day of creation, God creates man and woman. And it says in Genesis chapter 1, God made man and woman in his own image. That's the word that's used there. In his own image, in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, in those nations at that time period, it was very common for a king to set up images or statues of themselves throughout the land where they reigned. And so you could still find many of these from ancient cultures around the world. If you go to certain locations, 
you can find these, these uh, ruins of statues where a king would set up that statue, that image of himself. And what that's intended to convey is that that king's authority and rule continues on where that statue is. That when someone comes across that statue, that image of the king, they know and recognize, okay, I'm under the jurisdiction and the rule and authority of this person. So think about this for a moment. God creates mankind in his image. And then God says to mankind, I want you to rule over the fish of the sea, have dominion over the earth. Now, those are words we don't use very often, rule, exercise, dominion. I mean, we don't use that kind of language for what it means to be a manager or a boss, like, I have dominion here. No, those are royal words. What's happening in Genesis 1? In Genesis 1, from the very beginning of the Bible, God is introducing this reality. He's the king. And he set us up as human beings, as his image bearers, to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and subdue the earth, have dominion over creation as God's representatives, representing to all of creation the rule and reign of God. So he sets up this kingdom. But as the story unfolds, we realize that God's rule, his reign, is resisted. Adam and Eve, they sin. Sin enters into the world, rejecting God's design for their lives. Adam and Eve instead insisted, you know what? Uh, We're going to decide what's best for us. We're resisting your kingship, God, and we're going to go off on our own way. And so God's kingship, his rule is resisted. And the story of the Bible, as you continue reading on, is the unfolding story of how God is restoring the kingdom of God on earth. How is God going to rule and reign among his creation when human beings have rejected his authority, when we have said and resisted his design for our lives? How is this going to happen? And that redemption, that restoration that God brings about, one of the ways to think about it is in two phases, two ways. Uh, This is just a helpful way for us to think about when Jesus shows up and he comes on the scene He's coming and he's speaking to a culture that when he says his very first message, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus makes that statement, his hearers have in their minds a very specific idea in their Jewish context of what he's talking about. Jesus is talking about the reign of God when God is going to show in glory and power that he is the one who rules over all of creation. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he he communicates these two interesting realities about the kingdom. He says, God's rule, the kingdom of God, it's both near and present right now, and yet at the same time, it's not fully realized. To put it differently, the, the kingdom, it's already here in Jesus. When Jesus, in fact, comes to a place, he describes how, hey, the kingdom has come near. And then Jesus disciples out to these different villages and he talks and these disciples announce the good news of Jesus. Jesus describes that those villages, the kingdom of heaven, the rule of heaven has come near as they've announced the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so Jesus, by communicating this idea that the kingdom, the reign of God is here with his presence on earth, And yet it's not fully here quite yet and one day will be here in all of its power and glory is something that's conveyed all throughout the gospel of Matthew 
all throughout the, really the New Testament story. The kingdom is here. We can experience the blessings of the reign of God now. And yet one day, there will be a day when the reign of God is fully realized here on earth as it is in heaven. And so the disciples of Jesus, they are somewhat confused about what Jesus means about the kingdom of God because in their framework, in their understanding, they thought the kingdom of God coming in power meant that Rome, their occupiers, Rome, the one that had been abusing the Jewish people, Rome would be overthrown, that the Messiah would establish Israel as a national world superpower. This is their idea. They, they, they think that Jesus is going to come, the Messiah, and perhaps start this revolt, this moment in history where all of a sudden Rome would be overthrown and Israel would be reestablished. Jesus did come to bring the kingdom of heaven. He did come to inaugurate the reign of God, but it's not in the way that they expected. And so they ask a question. They say, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which is such a question that is like so fitting for the world in which the disciples are living. They're living in Greco-Roman days, Greco-Roman period. It's an honor-shame culture where like the highest good, the ultimate thing is to bring as much honor to the name. Roman culture in that time period, it emphasized uh, bringing honor. Your reputation was the thing that mattered most. And so you went through your life Telling and communicating others the things about yourself and your family, your history, your heritage that are of esteem. It's all about accolades. It's about your resume. I mean, Roman culture, Greco-Roman world, it was all about your resume. And you would basically live by your resume. It's what opened doors then closed doors. Not too far different from ours. And so with this emphasis, this is what, this is the world that the disciples are living in. And so they ask Jesus, hey, Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom? I mean, who's going to sit at your right hand? Who's the best? Who's the great? Who's the strongest? Who has the best honor? Who has the most power? Who is the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus turns to them and he responds by doing something none of them expected. Look at what happens in verse two. Verse two, Jesus does something interesting before he says something interesting. Look what he does in verse 2. He says, and calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them, the child. And he said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the disciples, they ask Jesus, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus says, Hey, uh, little boy, come here, come here. I want you to visualize this moment. Jesus with his 12 buddies gathered around. And all of a sudden, this little child, nobody probably knows who this child is, just gets set right in front of them. Now, this would be like an awkward moment for like this deep, you know, philosophical question about the kingdom of God for a little small child to just be thrown in the midst of it. And this child is just standing there and Jesus communicates something to them that they need to know about the kingdom before he can answer their question. He says, unless you turn and become like children, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Before we can even have a conversation about greatness in the kingdom, let's talk a little bit about who gets into the kingdom. 
In fact, you can't even get in, and it's a double negative here. This is very emphatic. He said, you can't even, no one can get in unless you become. And you turn, and you become like a little child, like this boy. Now, what's Jesus communicating here? Well, in that, in that world, in that time, children were especially just considered uh, with no status. They, in an honor-shame type culture, I mean, children, they had... Like me, applying for my first job, they had very little on their resume. Children were overlooked. They were seen as being in the way. And Jesus is saying, no, if you want to know the way, look at this child. And so this child is put in front of them. Jesus talks about, you must turn and become like this child. And uh, this image of a, a child being brought before them, if you can just think for a moment of what it's like to have a small child uh, whether you're a grandparent, a parent, or a sibling, or if you have a friend who has a baby, or a, uh, if you're an uncle or aunt of, of a small child, if you could just envision that stage of life for a moment, that stage of life where there's a sm- they're a small child, they're dependent on pretty much, for, for everything, they're dependent on adults, like for whether it's food, provision, safety, security, direction in life. I have a little one in my house. I have, I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old. And my one-and-a-half-year-old going places uh, under a global pandemic in public with a child who licks everything in his like, vicinity is very stressful. And so that stage of life, they're dependent on you for everything. And Jesus says, if you want to even enter the kingdom, you have to turn and become like a child. And then he describes further what he means. He uses this word humility. He says, you must humble whoever humbles himself like this child. They are the one who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This child, these children who are not concerned, they don't even have an idea of a resume. They're not concerned with status. They're not worried about whether or not someone is giving them honor for what they've done. No, you must become like a little child. Jesus here in this moment, he's redefining greatness. The disciples are asking him what greatness is all about. Who's going to be the greatest in the greatest place, the greatest, underliving the greatest rule, the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, it's the one who's not concerned about being the greatest. In fact, the disciples, the fact that they're even asking this question means they're not getting it. Jesus in his response gives them basically kind of like a rebuke. We can talk about greatness. Let's talk about how you get into the kingdom of heaven. Who is it that lives under the reign and rule of God? And so here's the statement I want you to write down. If you have a place to take notes, write this statement down. Here's kind of the summary statement of what's being taught here in Matthew 18. Is that humility is the way in and the way of the kingdom. Humility is the way in and it's the way of the kingdom. Let's talk about humility for a moment. You know, humility is this uh, attribute. It's so hard to define and describe. Humility is not something you kind of just arrive at. You know, I am humble now, right? What is humility? Humility in so many ways is about self-awareness. And here's what I mean by that. Humility is about seeing yourself rightly in reference to the right reference point. And so when we see ourselves as human beings before a perfect and holy and mighty God who is big, who spoke the world of existence, 
And we see God who created the heavens and the earth, a universe with all of these billions and billions of stars, everything that exists, and yet here on this tiny little planet, in our teeny tiny solar system, on our small little galaxy, in the vast space of the universe, that God then looks down at us, and the person who is humble has the self-awareness to note how small they are. See, the humble person realizes and recognizes their lowly state. That before an almighty God, they are very, 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 very small. They're like a child. Jesus here is showing that humility, seeing yourself rightly, seeing yourself in reference to who God is, that humility is the way into the kingdom of God. Here's what I mean by that. It's the way into the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. It takes humility. It takes becoming like a child of disregarding status, of not being concerned with people's perceptions, of not living for the resume to try and accrue as much honor and credit from people as possible. It takes humility to recognize there's one person who really matters. There's one whose validation actually counts. And I have done nothing to deserve it. It takes humility to say and admit, I I need something I can't do for myself. I I need for God, almighty God, to show mercy to me. I need almighty God to forgive me. It's the way into the kingdom because It takes humility to say, I'm not the king. I'm not the one who's ruling and reigning. It isn't my kingdom. It's not the kingdom of Justin. Like a a middle manager, right? Middle manager, maybe you're in middle management or you have a manager who has someone they report to. Right, middle manager, they have some authority. Don't get me wrong. But if the middle manager decides and says, hey, we're going to change the direction of the whole company. Yeah, we're going to start making this product now. We're going to leave that market Right? They don't have the authority to make such decisions. And here we are as human beings made in the image of God to reflect his rule and reign as his image bearers. And we as human beings, we say to God, hey, God, I- I'm going to switch things up. Uh, I think I know better than you do, so I'll live my life my own way. And it requires humility to enter into the kingdom by admitting our utter dependence on God, our need for his mercy, and the fact that we hold up our resumes before God, and he laughs. And we try and show what we've done, and God, look how many times I've gone to church, and I was kind of nice to this person, and hey, I haven't killed anybody, you know, like, hey, I'm not as bad as that person in my office, and we show our resume to God, and he's not impressed. I mean, he's perfect, he's holy, he's righteous. It takes humility to come before a holy God and say, God, I am completely at your mercy. I I have nothing to show. I I have nothing that I've done to deserve. I don't have an accomplishment or a merit that I can prove myself to you. God, I just need your grace. I need you to forgive me. I need you to come into my life. I need you to change me. And so Jesus here, he's talking about the way into the kingdom, the way of humility. So there are some of you perhaps who are here and you're listening wherever you may be. Maybe someone shared this with you. And 
I just want to lay before you, Jesus invites you into his kingdom, but the way in is the way down. The way to experience the shalom, the peace, the flourishing of life in the reign of Jesus is to humble yourself before him, recognizing your need for a savior. You know, the, this idea of the way into the kingdom is, is this not just the way into, but it's also the way of the kingdom. What do I mean by that? Well, the way that we get into the kingdom of God, humbling ourselves, recognizing our need for God's grace, it's not like then we get over that and then now we can move on to other things. No, the way into the kingdom is the way of the kingdom. It's a defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus. Someone who follows after Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, that we live as humble people, that we're different than the rest of the world. Now, um, my son Hudson, he's our, our four-year-old. He recently was learning the letter L, and uh, he was learning about it, how to write it, what sound it makes, what kind of like sounds it makes when you combine it with other letters. And he was telling me, he was very excited and very proud to share with me, Daddy, I learned what the letter L sounds like. I'm like, awesome. All right, buddy, tell me, what does the letter L sound like? And he, sa he says, it sounds like this. He it sounds like, ah. Uh. I'm like, okay, let's try that again, buddy. Let's try that again. What does the letter L sound like? And he goes, yeah, it sounds like, ah. Uh. And I'm like, hey, hey, buddy, that, that's actually the letter U sounds like, ah. Uh. But the letter L has a different sound. You want to try again? And he goes, no, no, it's ah. Uh. I know it's ah. Uh. I'm like, well, buddy, actually the letter L sounds like la, 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 la. Maybe you, you heard like la, L-U, and that got you confused. And he goes, no, daddy, the letter L makes the sound. Uh, he was convinced, and like there was nothing I could say to, to fix him. Next day, he comes home from school. They studied the letter L again. So I'm sure to ask him the question, hey, buddy, you know, tell me, how do you say the letter L? And uh, funny enough, he... <laughs> He goes, he goes, Daddy, the way you say, I, I learned the right way. The way you say it is, uh, and he said it like that because he kind of was admitting that he was wrong, but he also didn't quite want to admit that he was wrong, but with confidence, he goes, it's, uh, and he shared that with me. And so I was like, all right, buddy, it, it's, we'll work on it. We'll work on it. But here's why I bring that up. It's possible for us as people to be so convinced like absolutely certain, like not, you're not going to argue me away from this position. I know this to be true. I know this to be a fact. And to be so convinced on something that with due time, with age and maturity, we'd look back on and say, ah, yeah, that, that was really wrong. It's possible for us to be in that place. And Jesus Matthew chapter 18, he comes to his disciples. They ask him the question about who's the greatest in the kingdom. They're convinced they know what true greatness is. They're looking for what they need to do to put on their resume so that they could sit at Jesus' right hand in his kingdom. So they can be the greatest. And Jesus comes to people who are convinced they know what greatness is. And he says, ah, buddies, it's actually not that. It's something altogether different. It's like in a different, you're not even thinking in the right sphere. Your, your, your mind's in the completely wrong space. Jesus is saying that true greatness, true greatness is not about accruing accolades. 
and building our resumes and showing others how awesome we are and validating our value. It's not about that. True greatness comes in humbling yourself, in serving someone else, in pouring out our lives for the people around us, regardless of whether we get the credit. True greatness, the great one in the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus, is the one who humbles themselves like a child. Uh, there's this incredible book on the topic of humility by Andrew Murray. And uh, he talks about this idea of humility. There's so many incredible quotes in the book that I'd share. If you're interested in this topic, I can't encourage that resource to you enough. Humility by Andrew Murray. But here's what he says about it. He says, it's important that we know who Christ is, who Jesus is. Especially the chief characteristic that is the root and essence of his character as our redeemer. There can be but one answer. It is his humility. What is the incarnation but his heavenly humility? His emptying himself and becoming man. What is his life on earth but humility? His taking the form of a servant. And what is his atonement but humility? He humbled himself and became obedient to death. And what is his ascension and his glory but humility exalted to the throne and crowned with glory? He humbled himself. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And so it would make sense that humility is the way of the kingdom of Jesus, of the reign of Jesus, because humility is his defining characteristic. Jesus, in his incarnation, emptied himself, left the glory of heaven, and he took on the form of a servant. And while he was here on earth, he served others. He did not look for others to serve him, but he instead said, hey, how can I serve you? And then he died on the cross the most humbling, humiliating state to be in, to die on the cross for our sin. And then he rose from the dead. Philippians 2 says that it's in his humility because of his death on the cross where he humbled himself to the point of death. Therefore, because of that fact, God highly exalted him to his right hand. You see, it makes sense as followers of Jesus that our lives would begin to look more and more like Jesus. Jesus embodied this characteristic. He wasn't concerned with status. He wasn't trying to look good in the eyes of the elites and try and gain the approval of the insiders and the aristocrats in Rome and in Jerusalem. He wasn't interested in that. Instead, Jesus hung out with the outcast, the blind, the suffering, the weak, the neglected, the children, the people that everybody else would just kind of walk by to go talk to the important people. Jesus would have his eye on the one everybody just walked past. You see, in order to become a member of Jesus' kingdom, in order to live our lives under the reign of Jesus, the way in is humility, humbling ourselves, admitting our need for him, recognizing our dependence on the grace of God, and the way of the kingdom is humility. So the question that's before us is really, who, who am I following? Who am I following? Because... The beautiful thing about a message on humility is that it applies to everyone. There isn't a single person listening or here in this room right now that we don't need some extra help in the area of humility. In fact, if you don't think you need help in the area of humility, you are the most needed help, right? You need it most, right? Humility, we all need help in this area of humility. We're, we're constantly wrestling with pride in our hearts, 
being self-absorbed, consumed with how other people are viewing us, doing personal PR, working on our resumes, trying to make sure that we appear strong to those around us. And humility is emptying ourselves of that, recognizing who we are in light of who God is. And the simple reality that though we are so small, and though we absolutely bring nothing to the table, our resumes are blank before a holy God, that God still looks at us and says, I love you. He looks at us and he says, you're my son, you're my child, you're my daughter. So what I want to do as we kind of wrap up our time, I want to give you some ways for you to diagnose where you're at in this area of humility. There's a few strategies that we often employ with our life resumes to try and manage people's perceptions and manage the accolades we're accruing. So I list out, these are five strategies we employ for our life resumes that cue us that we're not really following Jesus in that moment. That in that moment, we've taken our eyes off him and we're following something else. So here's the first one. I want you to write it down. The first one is to protect the resume. First strategy, we protect the resume. Here's what I mean by that. This is where we refuse or we really struggle to admit when we're wrong. You got to protect the resume. No, I, I'm, I'm not wrong. No. Or if we realize, okay, we're wrong and there's no way we can argue or finagle our way out of it, like we just begrudgingly and we feel deflated. You see, when we struggle or we fail to admit when we're wrong and someone else is right, that's cueing us. I'm thinking I'm, I'm then of no value if I'm wrong. I've got to build my resume. I've got to be right. I've got to be smarter than everybody else. I've got to be better. And so when we're doing that, when we're protecting the resume, it's a cue. We've taken our eyes off of the one who emptied himself, Jesus, the humble Jesus, laid his life down for us. Here's the second strategy we employ. Maybe you'll resonate with this one is we forge the resume. We forge the resume. This is what I mean by that, that sometimes we'll assume as though we're an expert in an area where we have no expertise. And so we'll start speaking authoritatively as, we, as though we know all sorts of stuff about this topic. And then we'll come across someone who actually is an expert. And yet we still won't take the position of a learner. I'm still the expert. And this happens on social media all the time, right? Everybody's an expert. And very few people have, come, have gone to these places to be learners, to try and glean, to listen. No, 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 I'm forging the resume. I'm an expert. I saw a YouTube video, and therefore I'm educated on this topic. And so we forge the resume. We try and pretend we're something we're not. And so that's a sign. Why do we have to sound like we're authoritative? Why am I so concerned with being right? Why is that inclination? We've taken our eyes. We've taken our eyes off the one who embodies humility. Here's the third one. This is, I think, my favorite. It's the, <clears throat> the resume. The, <clears throat> the resume strategy. I don't know how you spell that. Good luck. Uh, but that, that strategy is when we don't get the credit for something that we did. And so we <clears throat> check it out. Hey, hey, come, come see what I did, right? We didn't get the credit. Someone didn't recognize. And so we call attention to it, right? That's a cue that we've started to live and look for some sort of validation that honestly, we have so much greater validation in our relationship with Christ. He has looked at us and accepted us and welcomed in. Why are we looking to those other areas for something we have better of in Jesus? 
That drawing that attention. Look at what I've done. We're showing the resume. Here's the fourth strategy. We compare the resume. We walk around and we've got all of our accolades. We've got our, our family life, our stage of life, what we do, and we compare it to the people around us. We compare it to our siblings. We compare it to our roommates. We compare it to those who are in our extended family. We compare it to our neighbors, our friends, our enemies, our bosses. And so we compare the resume. Well, I, I've got this happen. Well, at least I don't have that. It's cueing us. We've taken our eyes off of the one that we're to follow as Jesus followers. Here's the fifth strategy, the final one. This is the most sinister one. And here's the sneaky one. It's that we hide the resume. We hide the real resume. You see, because if we're honest, what's actually on our resume, like if we were real, it would have some stuff on there that we're not too proud of. It has some stuff on there that we wouldn't want to be broadcasting to the world. And so here's what I mean by that. If you, if you don't or if you've had a hard time admitting your failures, I'm not just talking about when you, you're wrong about a particular argument or you're wrong about what your beliefs are, what your opinion is on a topic. I'm talking about when you've messed up, when you've wronged someone. If you hide the real resume, there's this refusal to admit my sin. If we're in that place where our hearts have refused, we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. Because what does Jesus say? He says, I know your real resume. I know your sin. I know the real stuff that no one else knows. And I still love you. Why are you hiding that? Why are you trying to pretend you're perfect? Who do you have to prove? I've already accepted you. I know your junk. I died for your junk. All that stuff. I took the punishment for that. I know it real well, better than anyone else. And I still love you. We hide the real resume. We try and pretend as though we have this perfect version of ourselves. And so as followers of Jesus, I'm speaking to you who follow Jesus. Here's what I want to just encourage you to do this week. One tangible way to put into practice humility Hopefully you have a time of day and perhaps throughout the day you get times for prayer. But I want to encourage you to do this week for seven days, seven days. I want to encourage you this week to in your prayer times, whenever they are, to pray on your knees. Maybe you already do this, but if you don't, pray on your knees. Why pray on your knees? Well, because it, it brings you low, puts you in a posture where you're reminded of your position before God. You see, to be on your knees is a position of surrender. When you're on your knees, you're not in a position to go ahead and perform and do something. You're, you're in this place of surrender. And so this week, I wanna encourage you in your prayer times, pray on your knees and start by acknowledging how, how big God is, how small you are, how much you need him, and yet how much he loves you. You know, we are, uh, we're currently in a very heated political season. It's a time where um, clearly humility is just commonplace, right? I mean, everybody's humble. There's, there's a lot of division. Now, there's this interesting phenomenon in American politics. In, in the uh, mid-1900s, this term became very popular. It's the idea of riding someone's coattails. Maybe you've heard it before. The idea of it is like kind of an old tuxedo where someone has these extended coattails 
And the image was uh, someone who's at the top of the ticket. If they end up winning uh, their election, the person who's like down the ballot, so someone who is maybe affiliated with that person, a part of the same party as that person, but simply because of that person's efforts and their presence and all the work they put in, the campaign that they fought, all that all that that candidate took place simply because you rode on their coattails. You did absolutely nothing, but by riding on their coattails, you were then elected to office and put in a place of authority that honestly, if we're real, like you don't have the resume for. In our culture, to say to someone, you just rode their coattails is a derogatory term. Did you know if you're a Jesus follower, that's, that's actually who you are? We gladly with a smile on our faces, and with our empty resumes. Go to the one who did all the work, who has the name and the recognition, and simply by invoking his name and saying, yeah, I know him, I'm with him. I'm aligned with him. By aligning ourselves to Jesus, who alone is worthy, who alone deserves all honor and praise, and yet Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the grave. Yeah, we gladly ride those coattails where we didn't deserve, where we didn't earn. We humble ourselves, and we enter into the kingdom of God by the grace of Jesus alone. And there are some of you today, I'm convinced that you need to right now in the moment, in this moment, grab a hold of those coattails and trust in what Jesus for you. Jesus died on the cross to take the punishment for your sins and he rose from the grave. And right now in faith, by trusting in Jesus, receiving what he's done for you, by turning and becoming like a child, humbling yourself before your father in heaven, you can right now in this moment receive the grace, the love, and the forgiveness of your heavenly father. I want to invite you to do that right now. Would you bow your heads? If that's you and you're ready to put your trust in Jesus, I want to invite you right there where you're at to cry out to God and say, God, today I need you. God, I admit I need you. I recognize my resume, it's empty. I, I don't deserve restoration with you. I, I'm not good enough, but Jesus, I believe you died for me and you rose for me. I turn and I humble myself like a child. And just like a little child, I say, Jesus, I am utterly dependent on you. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace. Thank you for your example of humility. May, as, may we as your people increasingly demonstrate that humility in our lives. Help us to keep our eyes off on you follow after your footsteps. We pray this in your name. Amen. Hey, if that was a decision that you made to put your trust in Jesus, I, I want to invite you, whether you're here in this room or you're online, go to cityrev.org faith. Uh, whether on your browser, your phone, go to cityrev.org faith. There's a very short form right there that we'd love for you to fill out. And here's what we'd love to do. We'd love to send you a Bible. It's a simple way that you can begin growing in your relationship with God understanding what he has for your life. And so to close our time today, we're gonna take communion together. And so if you're here in the room, there are these cups we've passed out. It's a little kit. It has the bread and the juice there. You can go ahead and grab that and get that ready. If you're at home, go ahead and grab your bread and your juice. 
have that ready. Right here the, on top, there's a clear layer that you have to peel off in order to access the bread. But before we take it, I wanna read this scripture to you. Here's what communion really is all about. Right before his death on the cross, Jesus gathered his followers for a meal. And he gave them this meal as a symbol of what he was about to go do for them. Here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So here's what I would say. If you're a Jesus follower, or maybe even like right now, that was your moment. You just now put your trust in Jesus as your savior. Then Jesus would invite you to take communion, to take the cup and the bread as a way to remember his death on the cross for you. If you're not sure what you believe about Jesus quite yet, you wouldn't consider yourself a Jesus follower, I'd ask that you'd hold off from taking communion. This is a powerful symbol for those who say, Jesus is my King, He's my Lord, I live under His reign. And so here's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna pray for us and then in a moment I'll invite you right there where you're at in a time of reflection, we'll have a, the band is gonna sing. I wanna invite you when you're ready to go ahead and take the bread and then take the cup. Eat and drink and remember your Lord's death on your behalf. Let me pray. Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus, the one who left heaven, humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, the one who poured his life out for us. And so Jesus, we thank you for your body. Thank you for the fact that you came down to earth. You experienced what it was like to walk in the flesh. And Jesus, you gave your body for us. Jesus, we thank you for your blood. The blood that is the way in which our sins are forgiven, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, the blood that ran so that we can be washed white as snow. Jesus, we thank you for that. So as we take the bread and the cup, we do this in remembrance of you, proclaiming your return, that right now your kingdom is here, it's at hand, it's near. But Lord, we long for the day when your kingdom is fully realized, where heaven meets earth in a new and profound way, where we'll be with you for eternity, Lord. And so we pray as you instructed us, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We submit this moment to you, Jesus. And we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.